And it was told, um, and it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and fatted animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent of David and pitched, that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And disputed and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of the servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all, the and all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord and I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Father, bless your word today. Lord, I, as I endeavor to exposit from your word, to teach from your word, to preach from your word, Lord God, make me less and you more. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So November, we are in this series of the lost art of gratitude. I think that's appropriate. You know, Thanksgiving is a very uniquely American, uniquely um, Christian holiday. And um, it comes under attack every Thanksgiving, every November. Um, you'll see so many articles. In fact, when I was, I was doing a search about the original Thanksgiving, and every article was critical of Thanksgiving because it didn't talk, because people don't, for some reason, they think people don't know, like, the whole history between settlers and the Native Americans. Um, and I'm like, at the end of it, it's like, well, okay, but I mean, it happened though, right? In Plymouth, three days of, uh, of Thanksgiving. Yes, it did happen. Um, it's been asked if you had only one thing, if you only had, it's been asked before, if you only had today what you asked God for yesterday, what would you have? I asked Alan if I could share this today, so I hope you were serious and you're not going to be all embarrassed and angry with me later. Um, Alan shared a testimony yesterday during our men's breakfast I thought was so powerful because he was in a place in his life where he only had what he thanked God for the day before, which was nothing. Spent 30 days in the hole. And those 30 days, God had taught him that even when you have nothing, if you have him, you have everything. He started to be thankful for the very breath in his lungs. That even being in the hole, there was a roof over his head. There was food in his stomach. We get so ungrateful because we take so many things for granted. We think we are owed so many things. And the only thing we're truly owed is wrath. 
In God's mercy, he does not give us that. You think about like when you were a teenager, how much you took money for granted. Some of you are teenagers, so you don't understand yet. Until you get your first job. Before you get your first job, you're always complaining about how cheap your parents are. Mom and dad, I just want to go to a movie and I need to get popcorn, pop, and just a snack. So I need $50. Why are you being so cheap? And then you get to working. And your first job, and I think everybody's first job should be like their worst job because it really makes you value money. Um, so I remember when I first got like I first got a job, it was at an assembly uh, plant. And like every hour just... Um, just ticked by so slowly. I remember going to a movie. It was, it was Ang Lee's um, The Hulk. Um, anyway, terrible movie. And I was so upset afterwards. My friends were like, why are you so angry? I was like, okay, the movie, the popcorn, the pop, the candy, that was five hours of, tr- of, of utter hard labor for that. <laughs> We take so many things for granted. And what I've endeavored to do through this series, according to the Holy Spirit, is to make us aware that we drowned in an ocean of blessing. We swim in an ocean of blessing. We have so many little miracles that we never, that, that never get appreciated. And we are the poorer for that. For Thanksgiving itself is an end, not a means to an end. The first Thanksgiving in, in 1621, the Plymouth colonists and the Wanapog, um, uh Indian um, Native Americans shared an autumn fe- harvest feast that is acknowledged today as one of the first Thanksgiving celebration of the colonies. For more than two centuries, days of Thanksgiving were celebrated by individual colonists, colonies, and, and states. It, but it wasn't until 1863, in the middle of the Civil War, that President Abraham Lincoln proclaimed the National, the National Day of Thanksgiving to be held each November. The following I want to read for you is excerpts from that proclamation. So when people want to tell you, like, it's all built on a lie or whatever, no, it was during the Civil War that Thanksgiving was instituted by this proclamation. Let me read it for you. The year that is drawing towards its close has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies. To these bounties, which are so constantly enjoyed that we are prone to forget the source from which they come, others have been added, which are, are, are of so extraordinary nature that they cannot fail to penetrate and soften even the heart, which is habitually insensible to the ever watchful providence of the Almighty God, of Almighty God. In the midst of a civil war of unequaled magnitude and severity, which has sometimes seemed to foreign states to invade and to provoke their aggression, peace has been preserved with all nations, order has been maintained, and laws have been respected and obeyed. And harmony has prevailed everywhere except in the theater of military conflict. I'm going to skip this half portion here, this, the middle portion here, only to point out you can look at what's going wrong in the world in despair. Of course you can. No matter what's going on, no matter how much peace we're enjoying, you can look at the little things and think, man, everything is going bad, until you realize how many cities haven't burned. Until you realize how bad things could be and maybe should be, but they are not due to the providence of God. Lincoln saying this during the start of the Civil War. We're not at a Civil War right now. 
but still people want to act like it's worse than a civil war. Let me read down, go down here. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beficient Father who dwells in the heavens. What's Thanksgiving about? Praise to our beficient Father who dwells in the heavens. And I recommend to them and that while offering up the ascriptions justly do him for such singular deliverance and blessing, they do also with humble penance for our nation's perseverance and disobedience commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, sufferers in the lamentable civil strife in which we are unavoidably engaged and fervently implore the interposition of the almighty hand to heal the wounds of the nation and to restore it as soon as may be consistent with divine purpose to the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquility, and union. This last year, this last two years, I feel like the heart of this nation has been torn in two. There's so much division. Every little thing, everything that comes across is just seems like another opportunity to divide. May we pray that by God's divine provident, providential hand of a healing for our nation. These past two weeks, I have endeavored to reveal to you the, from the scriptures two prime reasons for gratitude we have in Christ. The first week was about being thankful for healing. In the biblical account, there is 10 lepers who come to Jesus, who shout at him from a distance. He heals all 10. And as they go to be seen by the priest, only one comes back to give thanks to God. Only one comes back to realize that he is more than just a magic man. He is more than a healer. He is a savior. So many receive common graces of God or even the greater graces of God, but very few come back at the feet of the healer to give him thanks. Few will hear, faith has saved you, as that one leper heard. In the second week, last week, we heard the story of the time Jesus was at a Pharisee's house when a woman comes in, an unnamed woman, and she comes to the table and she starts weeping. Her tears wash the Savior's feet and she uses her hair to wipe them. The host tears Christ down in his own mind. He tells himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who, what, who and what sort of woman this is who who's touching him. For she is a sinner. To this man, Jesus tells him a story and concludes it with the phrase, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Last week I said our thanksgiving towards God is in direct proportion to how much we believe he's forgiven us. If we believe that we've been forgiven little, we love little. And here's the sad, terrible part is the guy who was tearing Jesus down in his mind, he was as guilty before God as that woman was. But he believed he was better, so he didn't love Jesus much. In fact, he despised Jesus in his own heart. This week... This week, all of this leads to today's topic of thankfulness, thankful for God's presence. When we talk about the presence of God, we often are talking about several different things all at once. 
So let me clarify what I'm talking about today about the presence of God, what is truly the best thing to experience in all of the cosmos and beyond. In the presence of God that we have is omnipresence. His omnipresence. This is the unique, non-transferable um, attribute of God in that he is everywhere. He is everywhere. The psalmist David, who we've just read about, um, he would write in the Psalms, where can I go from your presence? He concluded that even if I went to the very depths of the grave, God is there. So many people, they don't realize this. So many people live. They'll say, yeah, I believe God is everywhere, but we don't live like it at all times. Because if we believe that God was there witnessing some of the stuff we did, we wouldn't do it. I'm reminded of uh, this saying um, that, you know, shoplifting is a victimless crime, like punching somebody in the dark. Um, Sometimes the things we do, we think nobody knows. Nobody knows, but God knows. And at the judgment seat, God is not only the judge, he's the chief witness. And God is there witnessing every horrible act. You know, we sometimes think about the judgment of God. God is just, he's just too mean with his judgment. Do you realize that when you were doing whatever you were doing, when I was doing whatever I was doing, God was there witnessing it? And because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein, what we were doing was not primarily against that person, ourselves, or whatever it was. It was primarily against God. That is why David will say, against you and you alone have I sinned. It wasn't a way of getting out of accountability. It was actually appealing to the highest power, his highest offense. God is omnipresent. People may think that they do things in secret that no one will ever know, but God knows. He is both judge and chief witness. We also, but that is not the type of presence I'm talking about today. That's there whether you know it or not. Whether we acknowledge it or not, God is there. I'm really talking about his manifest presence, his felt presence. So God is present whether we know it or not. But many times people know of God's presence, but it doesn't go very well for them or they have a different reaction. We see that in the scripture when somebody recognizes the angel of the Lord, they fall on their knees knowing that they must die because they've seen the face of the Lord. Leads to the presence of God's wrath. Earlier in 2 Samuel, a man named Yuza touches the ark and is struck down by the Lord. This presence of God terrifies, terrifies David. This is the presence, this is what I was talking about in my article in the paper um, last month about the prime fear all of mankind has. If I stand before the judge of all the universe, will I be just? This is the presence of God that, that people try to drown out the still small voice. I think the ever-growing and fanatical desire to justify oneself in their sins. I mean, we see that today. It's not simply, you do what you do, I do what I do. No, you need to celebrate what I do. You have to accept what I do, and if you don't, that's a sin, and I'm going to come at you with both barrels. There is such a desire for this because we want to justify ourselves because sometimes we feel the presence of God, and we know it's not a great thing for us. Now, those of us who have been saved, it is a great thing. And if we feel any guilt, it's a false guilt. But in the greater psyche of America, of this world, it is a dreaded thing to fall into the hands of a living God. David in his psalm says, where can I go from your presence? He concludes that even in the depths of the grave, there's no place to hide from his presence. What we call hell, sometimes we say it's the absence of God's presence, and that's not true. It's the absence of a good relationship with God and in his presence. 
but God is in hell doling out punishment. It is his hell, not the devil's hell. It is justice, the just judgment for our sins. The type of presence I'm talking about today, the presence that is in the scripture today, is the enjoyment of a right relationship of God's presence. This is the privilege of God's children and God's children alone. C.S. Lewis theorized in his book, The Great Divorce, that if there was a bus that went from hell to heaven every day, and people just got from hell, just got to go out, and they got to experience just the outskirts of heaven, that every, at the end of every day, that bus would fill up with just as many people as who came from hell. Because when they saw the grace and mercy and love of God, they just hated him all the more. And they would get back in the bus to go back. And he concluded that hell is actually locked from the inside. The enjoyment of God's presence is the benefit for every child of God. And truly, there is no greater thing. I said before, David in his psalm says, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Being God's presence is what we were made for. It is the, once again, it is the privilege of every believer. My last slide, Emma, go to that. I normally don't just tell you straight out what my thematic statement is, but today I am. The greatest ingratitude the believer commits against God is taking the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for granted. We have something as New Testament believers, people in the Old Testament, they would have died to have. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Where does God dwell? Does he dwell on the mountain? Does he dwell in temples built by man? He has chosen to dwell in his children. That brings me to the ark. Go to the picture of the ark that I got on there. There are many objects and places that represent the presence of God in the Old Testament. Whether that meant good or harm depended on the person that was around. It's like, I have great news, Jesus is here. But if you don't know Jesus and you love your sin, I have bad news, Jesus is here. Before David's time, the Israelites, when they were wandering in the desert, God was represented by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. When they were wandering in the desert, God speaks to Moses. He says, I'm going to send you an angel. And Mo- Moses, I, I don't know if the right word is, is, is angry or maybe upset or just in awe or, or whatever, but Moses says, no, don't. Don't lead us unless you're going to lead us. He was so desperate for the presence of God. God told him, if I lead you, I might, he says, I might get tempted just to kill you all. (laughs) Makes me think of some like road trips I've been on. But uh, anyway, uh, and Moses says, I'm just paraphrasing here. I don't care. He'd rather die than be without God's presence. God then has Moses build an ark in Exodus 25, 16. The ark is what you see above here. And he has him build this ark. It's a wooden box with a gold cover. Inside of it are the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, Aaron's staff, which had budded, and a jar of manna. The ark was used in the religious ceremonies of the, of the Hebrews, in which the high priest once a year would go into the Holy of Holies in the, tent of, in the tent that was prepared. He would make the sacrifices. He would dip his fingers in the blood, and he'd sprinkle it on the mercy seat. The mercy seat is what you see right here. Two cherubim facing each other, wings touching. And God would dwell then, the manifest presence of God would dwell above the mercy seat. He is he who dwells above the mercy seat with unassailable glory. 
And when you read through Exodus, the, the scripture I just gave here, Exodus 25, yep, Exodus 25, there's so many instruction God gives Moses for Aaron so that Aaron doesn't die when he goes in. Because that's how serious God's glory, God's presence was. That was the mercy seat. That is the ark that we are talking about here. It was a box that has, that has a golden cover with two cherubim that faced each other whose wings made the, great, the mercy seat. They're called cherubim, which is, is very interesting because when in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned and they were kicked out, he sets a cherubim with a flaming sword at the entrance so they would not eat from the tree of life. For to live forever in a fallen state is what the demons do. So that was God's grace to us. And now two cherubim are on the ark, which are representing, above that represents the presence of God. It's impossible for sinful man to interact with the presence of God. Only one person was allowed in the Holy of Holies in that, but once a year, and it was the high priest after he observed all of the ceremonial cleanliness rituals. That was the Ark of the Covenant. Let me catch you up with where we're at here in 2 Samuel. The Ark of the Covenant made by Moses dwelled in Israel, but it was captured by the Philistines in 2 Samuel chapter 6. A lot has happened to the ark. Let me catch you up. Um, in 1 Samuel chapter 6, the Israelites, they're having a hard time fighting the Philistines. So they think, well, why don't we take the ark into battle and we're going to use it like a weapon? So many people like to use God like a weapon, right? They like to use God for their own purposes as for their own thing, trying to use God as their own genie. It was a stupid idea and they paid for it because they not only lost, they lost the ark which should have given everybody in Israel just gasping like, what have we done? That was the most important thing we had in all of Israel. And we tried to use it like a weapon. I'm kind of assuming most of you have watched Raiders of the Lost Ark with Indiana Jones. That's what the Nazis want to do, right? Was use the Ark as a weapon. And that's what the Israelites, that's what the Jews are do, were doing here. And the Philistines, they take the Ark as a spoil of war. They really think they have something here. But man, they... They're their own worst enemy because they take the Ark of God and they bring it into the temple of Dagon, one of their gods. They take it into the temple and overnight they come back the next day and Dagon is on his face. The idol to Dagon is on his face. Of course he is because idols bow before the true God of the universe. The last thing you want to do if you have an idol you love is bring it into the presence of God because it bows before the God of the universe. They don't learn their lesson, so they just like, whoopsie-daisy, let's bring you back up, Dagon. They polish him up, make sure he's looking nice. They come back the next day. Not only is he, is he falling over, but his hands are broken off and he's been decapitated. That's what happens to the idols of this earth, is they become decapitated and disarmed before the God of the universe, the true God of the universe. People in town, people around the different Philistine cities, they start noticing hey, this wasn't here before. They start developing tumors. So they try to placate the God, the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, by making golden tumors and golden mice. And then they finally smart up and they realize, hey, why don't you guys just take this back? We're, we're, we're good. I know, I know we, we got it fair and square, but you, you guys have it back. Here's what I think is interesting. So 
They realize that the God of Israel is unlike any other God because he does what he wants and no one can stay his hand. It's what the Egyptians found out the hard way. It's what the Philistines found out the hard way. It's something David himself will find out the hard way. The people are afraid to bring it into Israel proper, so they keep it on the outskirts for 20 years. For 20 years, they didn't want the presence of God in Israel. That's something, right? Remember at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, they take the ark, they board it up, and they put it in the warehouse that like, you know, far out, you know, with all this other stuff, and they forget about it. You didn't know it, but it's pretty accurate to what Israel does for 20 years. They keep it on the outskirts. They don't bring it into, they don't bring it into the capital. They don't, they don't do what they're supposed to be doing with it. We who are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that's what we do, and we do not, we do not engage in the presence of God day by day. It's like we've taken it, we put it on the outskirts. From, from the story we've read, of course we do, because we don't want the Spirit of God, the presence of God around our idols, because they'll end up breaking. What a privilege it is that we can go into the Holy of Holies at a moment's notice. The presence of God, there is the fullness of joy. And we can go at any point in time. In the worship service, I pray that some of you are in the Holy of Holies today while we were singing. I pray some of you are in the Holy Holies today when we end in prayer. I pray that some point today you take time to go into the Holy of Holies because it's your privilege as a New Testament believer. It's amazing. I'll, I'll experience that when I'm going on runs, going on jogs. I shouldn't say runs. That sounds weird. When I go on a jog, I'll, it's my time where I meet with God. And I, I pray nobody's like watching me because I probably look like a lunatic. I'm talking to myself, I'm yelling, I'm, 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 I'm smiling, I'm laughing, um, because that's my time to meet with God. I remember one time the presence of God was so thick in this, I had to stop and I was hyperventilating. And I was like, even just thinking about it now, it was just amazing. I can go into the Holy of Holies while I'm running at the state park. <laughs> That's the privilege we have. So today in our, in our scripture, as we go through here, I want to talk about what the presence of God produces. It produces joy, it produces ridicule, and it produces worship. My first point right here is the, spirit of, the, the presence of God produces joy. Sam Storm, Reverend Sam Storm says, Joy is not necessarily the absence of suffering, it is the presence of God. That right there is the best explanation for joy I've ever come across. It is the presence of God. Nobody has joy like me unless you have the joy of the Lord. That is the true, purest form of joy. It is not simply not suffering. It is, it is the presence of God in my life. My first point here is the presence of God produces joy. This is going to be verses 12 through 15. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because the, ark of, because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. God is holy. Before we get into this section of chapter 6, we have David's first attempt in, in, the, in chapter 6 of taking the ark back to Jerusalem. It doesn't go well. David thinks he can help God. He has a better plan than God that God had put in the scripture. And he has a new cart to bring the ark. 
And as they're taking this new cart over, it, it, it stumbles, and the ark is about to spill out. So a guy named Yuza touches the ark, and God strikes him dead. And we're like, why does God so mean here? Well, here's the thing. God said how he wanted the ark transported, and it wasn't by a new cart. God's ark is holy. Uzziah was not. Yuza was not. And you look at this, and I I, I thought about this. Alistair Begg brought this up. What was the worst that was going to happen? It was going to hit the ground, the ground that is not humanly sinful. And it was probably God's will for it to hit the ground because stop what you're doing, David. This is holy ground. David first gets angry at God. Then he grows scared of God. and And then he has the ark brought to a man named Obed, Obed Edom, who's a Gittite. And I think this is really interesting. So Gibbite, um, that, that means that he is not only just a foreigner, he's a Philistine. I would love to be a fly on the wall when David was convincing him to take the ark. Because I imagine he knows what happens in, happened in Philistine two, uh, 20 years before that. And he's probably thinking, you know, no, I think that's good. I don't think I really need that. I don't want to get tumors or whatever's going to happen. And I imagine David, you know, this is right after David just like utterly trounced the Philistines. So he's like, you know, I just like destroyed like all of those, all of those cities. How about you just do what I say? He, David was really using Obed-Edom as the canary in the coal mine. He knows that God is upset with him because he, well, he disobeyed God, fragrantly disobeyed God. So he needs to know when is God's wrath going to subside? So if God kills Obed-Edom and his family, he knows that things aren't going well. But if he doesn't, then it's going to be okay. It's, it's not really a nice thing to do. But three months pass. And you can imagine, anybody's talking to David, David's like, man, I really messed up. Three months without God's presence right now. And then he hears Obed-Edom, it's going great. His family is prospering. We don't even really know what Obed-Edom did with the ark. All we know is that he must have honored the ark because those who didn't honor the ark... They, there was repercussions. So you can imagine this guy who is a foreigner, who's a pagan, he, he puts it into a place of honor, must not be letting people touch it. You can imagine people visiting his house and, him to, and them asking him, what is that? He's like, that is, the, that is my, the delight of my eyes. That right there is the ark of God of the Hebrews. And he has been providing for us. He has been blessing us. Don't touch it. Last person who touched it died. But just check it out. The canary. So David finds out he is prospering. So now he has, David has a passionate pursuit for the presence of God. Three months pass and Obed is not dead. He's prospering. So David knows that God has lifted his wrath. David understands that God is not safe. He's not a tame God. Many people want him to be safe. They want him to be a tame God, to do what they want him to do. David was guilty of this. But beyond all that, underneath all that, he's desperate for the presence of God. Are you? David knows it could kill him, but he doesn't care. He's so desperate for the presence of God. It's a lesson that's learned. In those three months, David would have had to have reread the law of God about the transport of the ark, and he changes his ways. He remembers to treat it as holy. He understands why Yuza died, and he is thankful that he has his own life too. This time would be different. This time, the priest would do their job. Verse 13. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. He stops and sacrifices. 
those of you who are maybe not aware the way this would work, and you can go back to my picture of the ark. Um, it's a heavy box. It's made out of wood. It has a golden top. Um, the, uh, you see these poles right here. You'd have priests on each pole, and they would have to, they'd have to carry it. It was quite a ways. You can imagine, they get all hitched up. They got it up, and it's like one, two, three, four, five, six. And David's like, stop! Everything okay, David? You got to stop. We got to sacrifice because the ark of God, it's working, it's working, it's working. That's the kind of excitement. That's the kind of energy that's going on right now. David is like, it's working. Nobody's died. I think everything's good. Let's stop and sacrifice. Let's give to God what he is worthy of. Sacrifice is worship. Let's stop and give thanks. I did a whole series on worship a year or so back. We often think of worship begins and ends with music, but that's a small part of worship. In fact, in the Old Testament, worship is also synonymous with their sacrifices as well, not just the music. In the New Testament, we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices. God is doing something amazing in your life. Stop and sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship. I remember this old song, we bring a sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. I always liked that song. I always thought like, well, it doesn't cost me much to, to sing a song. And then like, as I get older, I realize sometimes there are times where I'm going through such a struggle that my mind and my heart aren't in it. And I don't feel like worshiping. I don't feel like praising, but I decide to anyway, and it's a sacrifice of praise. But there's nothing in my heart or my head to think that God is good, but I decide to praise anyway, and it changes me. It's my sacrifice of praise because I take my curmudgeonness, my perspective, and I bring it to the altar. Now I get God's perspective. This was never so evident to me than after a praise and worship service. Um, one of my teenagers brought their... Uh, I used to do youth ministry for a number of years. One of my teenagers um, put on the altar his pack of cigarettes and said, I'm quitting. That's a sacrifice of praise. I didn't ask him to. I wasn't even doing a message like that. But it was what the Holy Spirit did. Because you know something? If, you, if you're worshiping and it doesn't change you, you've just been entertained. It's not worship. And the classic movie that I made my college friends watch over and over until they hated it, Footloose. There's this cringy scene where Kevin Bacon, the greatest action star of any time, he uses verse 14 as his proof text as to why they should be allowed a well-choreographed dance in some barn somewhere. But verse 14 in its proper context here, and David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. I was looking at the uh, word for danced in the, in, in the Bible, the Hebrew word, karar. And it means, uh, what it, is, it's, it means to encircle, it means to advance, withdraw, and advance. It's a military term. And I'm like, man, if dancing looked like that, I'd probably be more into it because I think it's kind of stupid. <laughs> it's just my personal preference. You like dancing, I don't care. Um, but I, like, I'll see synchronized dancing. I'm like, oh, this is so stupid. Anyway, um, but if it, looked like a, if it looked like a battle, like, I mean, like, I like, you know, um, what's it called? Um, uh, West Side Story, right? They're doing the dancing, dance fighting. That's the word for dancing there. I don't know if it really applies to anything. Um, but David danced before the Lord with all his might. He wasn't the only one doing it either. 
but it's significant he too is dancing. All of Israel will be dancing, singing songs, blowing instruments. What king would condescend to take off his royal robes and dance with his subjects? We know King Jesus does that. He who being very nature God did not consider equality with God something to hold on to, but humbled himself to the nature of a servant. David isn't dancing for them. He is dancing before the true God and King of Israel. And it's his right as a citizen of the kingdom. You'll notice he is wearing a linen ephod. He, he exchanges the purple for the white. David fulfills some of the boxes of prophet, priest, and king in his life. He is only king, but he, in a very respectful way, also fills in the other two roles. He prophesies in the Psalms. The New Testament makes this very clear that he was a prophet. And he is wearing a linen ephod, which, was the, which is the garb the priest would wear. Now, he is not usurping the kings, the, the, not kings, the priest. He is merely interacting and participating in this celebration. He blesses the people in the name of the Lord of, the Ho Lord of hosts, something the priest would have done. I want to point out the biblical, that the biblical account does not say that he danced naked. This is something that goes around that I'm going to correct for you today. He was not stripping down naked. Um, that was something that is actually in the histories of Flavius Josephus. Um, the scripture says he was wearing a linen ephod. Um, he was, so he was wearing something some people, many uh, scholars actually think he was wearing it over his clothes, fully dressed. I want to make that clear. Um, so the presence of God produces joy. David doesn't care what anybody thinks. It's before the Lord he's dancing. And with all of his might, the most important commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. It's one aspect of worship we, we neglect a lot in churches. That we should, with our hands, with our bodies, worship God. We do this in our work. Do whatever we find to do with all of our heart is unto the Lord. You can do this in many different ways. David dances with all of his might before God. He doesn't care. And that leads me into my second point here. The presence of God will also lead to ridicule. Verse 16. Verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. We're going to skip down to verses 20 and 23 um, in a second here. Um, the reason why I just, I wanted to end with something positive, And this is kind of like all of a sudden in the story, it's like an aside. It's kind of like the author saying, hold up. Not everybody's having a great time. True worship. There's a theme you see in scripture when it comes to genuine worship. Those who play the worshiper scoff at true worship. You have Simon who said to himself while watching the unnamed woman wipe and anoint Jesus' feet that Christ was no prophet. Doesn't he know this woman is a sinner? When Mary of Bethany copies that woman, it's Christ's own disciples who tear her down. David's, own, David's first wife looks at David and all of Israel, and she despises him in her heart. So I have here, if you can see, I hope you can, um, you have the Grinch who stole Christmas looking at Whoville. This is how I see Mikkel in my mind. Everybody's having a great time. Why isn't she down there praising, worshiping? Because that's, that's below her dignity. She's, she's the queen. 
So she's up on the mountain. She's seeing everybody having a great time, and she's despising David in her heart. Just like the Grinch here, her heart is two, two sizes too small. But since this is not Christmas yet, I am not using this example. Go to the next one. Yeah, let's move on. <laughs> the first week I said, let's not jump into Christmas right now, so I'm not. Um, but if I was, there's a green furry person who despises people who have joy and fun. And I'm, I'm, I'm uh, making a connection between him and Mikkel. Um, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The more we try to make it pa- palatable to Simon, Mikkel, and Judas, the more we empty of it, of it of its power to save. Leonard Ravenhill said it's easier to wear a cross than to bear a cross. Mikkel, she was the daughter of Saul. It makes sure that we know that. Not the wife of David, but the daughter of Saul. Obviously, it wants us to understand in the scripture that she has her sympathies more towards her father, who is deposed, than her own husband. This is a sad thing. You see this in marriages, and it's a really difficult thing. It adds stress in the marriage. When people do not truly leave and cleave, but they're still they're partisans with their family. And it's like a war between the two families. It's, it's, it's incredibly destructive. Mikkel here tells us she's, a, she's the daughter of Saul instead of the wife of David. She was David's wife, but really she was the daughter of Saul. She, uh, she is David's first wife. He won her when he beheaded Goliath. Then when Saul was wanting to kill David, when Saul was wanting to kill David, it seems like she loved him quite a bit. She lowers him through a window, but now she's judging him through one. When David fled Saul, when David fled, Saul gave Michal to another man, and she lived with him for a number of years. When David became king, he reclaimed Michal. It's a difficult thing as a reader when we read that account when he reclaims Michal from her current husband. Because you wonder, why, why is he doing this? The romantic in me wants to believe that, well, he loved her. He was his first love. She was rightfully his wife. You know, Saul shouldn't have given her to another man and he couldn't live without her. So he goes and he makes this great overture. And then we get to this part and we realize it's, it's, it's not that way at all. It's not that way at all. Many have theorized and they're probably right. It was probably mainly political. After all, Saul is dead. All of his able-bodied sons are dead. In fact, there's just one who's, who's crippled who would not have been a good, good prospect for ascending to the throne. So is David taking back Michal so he can be, I'm the, I'm the son-in-law of Saul. I have every right to the throne. If he did, it was the silliest thing he could have ever done because it was God, not the succession of kings that made David king. He did not have to reclaim Michal for that to happen. God had made him king by his own sovereign decree. So you look at this and it is a tragedy because Michal had been living with another with another husband for those number of years. You can imagine the resentment she had in her heart towards David. Now he's not even acting like a king. Scoffing. Let's look at the way she scoffs David in verse 20. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to greet da- to meet David and said, and it's very interesting because I know a lot of people, they can stand in a congregation or lead, you know, great groups of people and worship to God, and then they come home only for it to be a war zone. He comes back, and it says, But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet, to meet David and said, 
how the king of David honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So let's look at the scoffing that she does here. Lowest of the low. She can't think, this is, I always skip over this, and Alistair Begg didn't, and that's why I didn't skip over it this time. She doesn't say he uncovered himself to his female servants. She says, you uncovered yourself to your servants' female servants. There really couldn't be a lower insult she could think of. So not to your servants, not to your peers, not to your subjects, not to the free people, your servants' female servants. It's the biggest dish she can think of to, to, to do it. Why? She doesn't see him as a king. Her, say, her sarcasm is cross-cultural. Verse 21. No, I'm not in 21 yet. Um, her sarcasm is cross-cultural. We read it and we get it all. We, we get it all of these thousands of years later. He's no king to her. He doesn't act like a king. He doesn't dress like a king. He doesn't compose himself like a king like her father was. If this man was a prophet, he would know who's touching him. Sorry, that's not from this scripture, but it seems to apply. That disdain for true worshipers of God. She calls him, he's like a vulgar fellow. That's that's my translation. Uh, My translation says she tells him that he is acting like a vulgar fellow, but a better translation really is vain because what the word means is worthless. You're worthless. It's like Simeon, right? Looking at that woman, she's worthless. She's a sinner. It's like Judas seeing Mary break the box of pure nard and saying, this could have been bought and the money given to the poor. She's worthless. She calls him a worthless man. David's response to her is important. It's not filled with an ounce of self-pity or repentance. This is verse 21. And David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. And I'll make myself more contemptible. Before I get to that, so she comes at him telling him, you're not acting like a king, hashtag not my king. And he's like, hashtag it doesn't matter. God put me as king above your, before, above your dad. Something powerful in that, in that he's realizing that it's not because of any earthly right, it's by God's decree that he is king. It was before the Lord. That phrase appears three times in chapter 6, and it's important. This was a right response to the presence of the Lord. David is not, does not have an ounce of regret for what he did before the people that day, because it wasn't before the people he danced, it was before the Lord. It was the reason David existed. When he was... when. When was the last time the joy of the Lord set your feet to dancing? That a wild thrill ran up your spine. The king has returned. David calls himself, appointed me as prince, because he understood that while others called him king, he was a prince. That God was the true king. And the king had returned. You remember, maybe remember in Lord of the Rings when Boromir dies and he says those words to Aragorn that the, have you ever been called home by the sounding of the trumpets? The, the sons of Gundor have returned. The king is here. This is what we do every Sunday. We come together and we worship, we praise God because the king is here. Are we to put that then and shove it away in some closet somewhere? No, we have the very presence of God 
So David doesn't have an ounce of remorse because what he did was before the Lord and his own conscience testified that very thing. He does no self-pity. He has no regret. And he tells, and now in my translation, and so let's go to verse uh, 22. I will make myself even more contemptible than this. I will be abased in your eyes. You probably see some kind of mark right there about your eyes. Um, So in the Hebrew, it's translated as my eyes. In the Subtuagent, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's your eyes. Obviously, I think original text is the Hebrew, my eyes. David was willing to debase himself in his own eyes, but he will not be held in dishonor by those who shouldn't be holding him in dishonor. At the very end of this, still in the second point here, Mikhail's fate. We are told Mikhail was childless until the day she died. The historian Josephus claims that she had five children from the previous marriage. If this really is a contradiction, then Joe is wrong. If it's not a contradiction, I think probably it's because what, what we're seeing here is that there was no children from this union, meaning it wasn't a valid marriage then. If you're trying to say, I'm king because I'm Saul's son-in-law, and you have no children from Mikhail, it's not in that regard a, a legitimate marriage as far as succession of kings go. Because it doesn't need to be. He was not king by earthly means. He is king by heavenly means. I point out about, about Mikhail too, because I mean, I, I do wonder about this, you know, just over one thing. Um, many videos I see on this or movies or, or, or plays, it's David telling her that she'll be childless. The, the scripture doesn't say this. The scripture just states that she was childless. I think that's an important distinction People think that, you know, David just, that was like some judgment or curse on her. I don't really think that that's what that's saying. I think when you have two people that despise each other, they're probably not going to get together. And it's okay because David was not king because of, of royal succession. He was king according to God's providence. The third thing worship produces, according to the scripture we have today, is worship. A king, a leper, and an unnamed woman are all siblings in worship. I didn't really plan this series other than the titles. Then I start working on it, and I see the connections, that the greatest worshipers are those who express the greatest thanksgiving. They have a revelation of their great need for salvation. The leper who looks at his skin, that it's made whole, he runs back to the healer because he knows he's more than a healer. He falls down in a, posi- in a posture of worship, The unnamed woman realizes that she has been forgiven much, so she weeps and loves much. She takes her own self-esteem, her very hair, and she esteems Christ. David is despised in Michal's eyes, and he says that he will be despised in his own eyes even further. Why? Because only three months before this, he messed up real bad. Uzziah was dead, and in large part, it was David's fault. He, he'd been unclean like a leper in his own heart. And he had a huge debt of sin like the woman and like you and I have. So he has to worship and be glad because he was dead and he is now alive. It's the only response to such a great salvation. He is dancing because he is in the presence of God and it costs to worship. If worship doesn't change you, then you've only been entertained. Worship is a living sacrifice. I want to point out David is not out of control. Go back to verse 17. 
And they brought and they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among them all the people who mud, who, the, of the, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. I want to point out something. David's not out of control here. God is still a God of order, not of disorder. Sometimes we come across scripture like this, and then we make it a free-for-all in church, and we try to act like that's from God. God is always a God of order, not, of a dis, not a God of disorder. David is not out of control. They get to the place, and he, dis, he directs them where the ark goes. He then makes the burnt offering, the peace offering, and blesses the people. He's still in control, even though he is worshiping God with all of his might. I will hear a lot about how worship is not about the music, and that's very true, but this might surprise you. Worship doesn't need to have music either. Sometimes music actually is a hindrance to true worship. Hebrews 12 tells us that worship, what worship truly is, it's a living sacrifice. In these verses, we have a physical representation of what that looks like in the sacrifice of animals. In the New Testament, we take up our cross daily and follow him. In Sunday school, we were going over the last bits of Nehemiah. And the people, once again, went back to their sin and were were asking, why? I mean, after all the things, why do they go back to that? And, and there was some really great um, observation. I thought one of the great ones is that like, okay, but now it's day-to-day life. That's when the devil attacks us the most. When we're in the mundane parts of life, when things are going okay, nothing's breaking. It's not a mountaintop, but it's not a, but it's not a ravine either. It's the valley. Obedience happens in the valley. Worship, living sacrifice, to constantly be aware of this. Um, We look at the life of David. That's the part he had a hard time in, is in the monotony of life, is to make sure that he's continually sacrificing, continually making thanksgiving to God. He blesses the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. This is cool. David, first, second time he's on the scene in in the Bible is when he kills Goliath. And you remember the story of Goliath? Goliath comes out in the, in the middle, in the valley, and he starts talking smack like he's a WWE um, wrestler. It's like Macho Man Randy Savage. Bone saws ready. And <laughs> all the people are terrified. And David, he comes out there, and, and, and Goliath says to him, am I a dog that they send a boy with a stick to chase me away? And David tells him, okay, you, and this is my paraphrase here, you can go back and read it. But David tells him, you know something? You come against me with your being all big and brawny, your military superiority, your weapons, your armor, all of these things you think are so great, your big head and all that. Well, I come against you, he says, in the name of the Lord of hosts. David had an advantage that Goliath could not possibly overcome, and so he cuts off the boaster's head and dances with it but not the way he dances before the presence of the Lord and blesses them in the name of the Lord of hosts. The value of the presence of God. David valued the presence of God. To him, the point he was willing to accept his own wife despising him, even if it should, even if it should cost him his own life, he was desperate for God's presence. Worship team, would you come up at this point?
I knew this was going to be a fun sermon to go through because at the very end, I'm going to tell you something. If we found the ark today, it would be a box that has gold on top of it, a jar of, uh, of uh, bread, a staff that, has, that was budded, and uh, two stone tablets. It would be huge historically, but that's not where God dwells. It's not where the presence of the Holy Spirit manifests. You know where God, where the Holy Spirit dwells? You, 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 you. No longer is there a temple for us to go into the Holy of Holies, but you can go into the Holy, Holy, Holy of Holies right now. Are you desperate for the presence of God? You have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You have something better than the ark. Something better than the ark. The Holy Spirit himself lives in you. I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? We use that verse so much out of context. We use it for physical health a lot. We'll try to use it as a way of bringing more law into other people for things that damage their body or we think damage their body or maybe they damage their body or whatever. You understand how, how, what a significant thing that is? The Holy Spirit lives in you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Tomorrow you're going to go to work and you are going or school and you are going to be challenged to respond in ways that are not godly to touch the ark with unwashed hands. Or you can go into the Holy of Holies and find grace and redemption because we can approach the throne of God with confidence because of our great high priest. Let me close here before we do our final song with this. What I said before, you can put that up, Emma. Thank you so much. That last slide. The greatest act of ingratitude the believer perpetrates against God is taking the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for granted. To take the ark and put it in the warehouse. Take it back out. Bring it forth. Dance before the Lord. Sing songs, spiritual thong, songs of thanksgiving. Worship team, would you please lead us in our final song?